now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. It's that time of the week again. Your weekly dose of crippling depression. (laughs) 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 Welcome back, guys. It's Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, uh, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College. Uh, Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College is not with us today. He's on assignment. He is on assignment <laughs> in Europe, I believe. Yeah, he's our investigative journalist. Uh, but we do have our senior legal analyst with us, Tom Cavanaugh. <laughs> never gets old hearing no, that, does it? <laughs> it just never gets old. <laughs> um, yeah, not much going on this week. No, no. no. You know. This will be a short one, probably 20 minutes maybe at most we could talk about some you know what's going on in egypt right now you know i don't know there's a few I don't things know, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah just, we'll, we'll have to scrape yeah oh my god why is this happening i just can't do it anymore um yeah, this is this is gonna be a different format and we're there's just so much to talk about over the past week with everything that's happened between the summit and um the uh what is it the um kavanaugh nomination and Various other things that'll weave in and out of those two topics, and then we'll see where we go from there. But before we do that, um, shameless plugs, uh, podcast, um, social media first. Wow, I'm tired. Um, follow us on Twitter at uh, Barstool Paul P O L Facebook, I guess at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on the Untapped app on iOS and Android. The podcast you can find on SoundCloud and Google Play Music, Stitcher. Um, most podcasting platforms uh, and then most of you guys are listening on iTunes so review us and share us on there um, that helps us tremendously um, thanks for anybody that's listening and sharing and reviewing we, we appreciate the support because we like doing this yeah, makes a big as difference yep. cripplingly depressing <laughs> as it can be <laughs> so anyways I, I'm it's not it's the news that's depressing not the podcast not the conversation stop yeah. It. Yeah. yeah we do this to stop the depression yes that's absolutely yes. Yeah. that's right this is when I come out from under my desk. Um, I, where, where do we start with this? Let's start with a summary. Okay. All right. So, so, gentlemen, let's take a look back or take a moment to reflect on the week that was. It was a mere seven days ago, and it's 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 crazy. It feels how like much a lifetime. I know <laughs> that Trump turned the NATO conference into a reality TV show, relentlessly attacking longstanding U.S. allies. He was then off to Great Britain to meet with the Prime Minister Theresa May and the Queen. During the visit, he publicly criticized the Prime Minister's handling of Brexit, threatened any future U.S.-U.K. trade deals, and said Boris Johnson would make an excellent Prime Minister. Tens of thousands of protesters showed up in London, including a large inflatable balloon of Trump in a diaper holding a cell phone. That was a piece of work. On Friday, the Department of Justice released uh, indictments of 12 Russian intelligence officials for hacking related to the 2016 presidential election. Trump promised to bring it up with Putin, and in the same interview stated that the U.S.'s biggest international foe was, wait for it, 
the European Union. All that was before <laughs> Monday's historic press conference with Vladimir Putin, a truly remarkable press conference. When asked directly if he believed his own intelligence community or Putin, Trump stated, quote, I don't see any reason why it would be Russia. And we'll come back to that. Uh, and that, quote, President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial. He went on to note that he held both countries, res both countries responsible and that the United States has been foolish. Trump's remarks were quickly condemned widely, including from leading Republicans. John McCain released a statement saying, quote, Today's press conference in Helsinki was one of the most disgraceful performances by an American president in memory. Ouch. Uh, why don't we start with our general reaction to Trump's remarks, and then we can explore all of the elements that have grown out of that. So, so I don't know. Just at a gut level, what was your reaction to seeing this and the coverage and all of it? <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired. It's, it was, it's... We've gotten used to the pace that things come out now, yes. and it's, it's, you know, you it's it's the the prison analogy. You're just there, and this is the reality of what you're dealing with now. This was so rapid fire and so, just out of left field. I, I, I like I try and I, this is going to sound hilarious. Try and maintain an even keel when it comes to and probably lean a little bit more conservative, but. The NATO summit, I can still kind of support that in some to mm -hmm. some degree. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about the Putin yeah. summit, it's it was just a fucking disaster. It was so bad. I like I I don't know. I he'll come back from this oh, because he can come back yeah. from anything. But this this really really I think put a big dent in his. Uh, at least his perceived image. And I think your reaction was, was uh, similar across the ideological spectrum where, you know, you expect that the left is going to be up in arms, Democrats are going to be angry, mm -hmm. and the right. That wasn't the case here. Mm -hmm. Everybody, and very quickly, pushed back and were upset by this. Yeah. Uh, Tom, what was your, you know, as, as a legal mind <laughs> watching foreign policy, what was, what was going through your head? Uh, this is Trump on steroids. Yeah. It's, it's everything he is. But more of all of it, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and in ways that were less predictable, maybe more harmful. Uh, I'm struck by the fact that once again he does something really good. The Kavanaugh nomination, I think, is uh, brilliant, and and I'll just say why in a moment when we move to that topic. But he's managed even to overshadow nominating a Supreme Court justice with his performance uh, with Putin. It, it's just absolutely beyond belief that, mm -hmm. that he could pull this off. Yeah. Who would think you'd say the following sentence? It is easier to read Putin than Trump. Yeah. I mean, it really is. I, I, mm -hmm. You can divine his motives. Maybe we'll talk about that in a yeah. moment. Uh, you can see what his uh, objectives were. He's accomplished some. I think he hasn't accomplished others. I can't for the life of me figure out what Trump's up to. I just, I can't even figure it out. Mm -mm oftentimes against his own interest. Yeah. Right. I mean, as, right. as I was looking at this, and the, the reason I tuned in is he had one job, one job in that press conference. It didn't matter what happened in the in the two-hour private meeting with mm -hmm. Putin because nobody, there's no record of that. He could say whatever he wanted. In that press conference, he had to come out and he had to support his intelligence community and he had to condemn Russian interference in the... I mean, that's all he had to do. If he did, does that, he says that even in a mild way, that's all he has to do and that's what everybody's paying attention to. And in that moment, he can't do it. And he throws his intelligence community under the bus. He starts attacking Democrats, the FBI. He goes into the email servers. It was a surreal moment saying mm -hmm. he's doing this right now. And it's one thing to do that at a, at a rally. 
when you're in Montana at a presidential rally. It's, it's, it's another thing on an international stage with Putin right there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of why conservatives were so upset about this is that there's mm-hmm. The, the, the politics is supposed to stop at the water's edge, and this was this was embarrassing. Uh, well, I, the hmm, it's yeah, the reasoning behind it just just escapes me. And realistically, I can almost understand the point of if you're if the press is trying to you know goad him into having some sort of very vehement response with Putin sitting right there. I can easily see him going. This isn't the venue for that. We're going to have a two-hour two-hour discussion about it. You know, it's sure. I, you know we have a lot of things to discuss and some things that will you know not be easy to to talk about and leave it at that. It's all the shit after yeah. that. Like I, 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 it made no sense. It makes no sense. Well, <laughs> even those in the Help administration me. came out and and so the you know you're watching the press accounts come up and they said this was not what was planned those mm. in the in the white yeah. house said we had prepped him we had pushed him to say you have to push back on putin this is your this is your job to do this and they were stunned that he didn't do it and that he essentially caves to this i mean i, I think you're right tom it was hard to know what was going on in his head and it was stunning to see the similarity between those two in terms of trump echoing Putin's core global vision. I, I, I didn't know what to make of it. Mm-hmm. I think Trump uh, always wonders who the primary person or entity against which he has to push back is. And uh, my sense is that he conflates DOJ, FBI, NSA, CIA into one big establishment, and they are his primary enemy. Yeah. There's state. nothing else on earth. There's nothing else... In, in his agenda, they are the enemy. The Mueller indictments, and I, they were very troubling to me. Uh, I'll just, uh, we can come to that in a second. But I think what he did was got on stage, looked at that podium, looked at his notes and thought, who am I really fighting with? Mm-hmm. I'm not fighting with this guy next to me. I'm fighting with this bunch that keeps doing things to me yeah. that make it hard for me to be president, which is sure. exactly what uh, Putin did, uh, and that muddy waters for me. Uh, I. I Believe me, I'm not justifying yeah. it in any way, but I'm, I'm trying to get in the guy's head because it was so erratic and so uh, uh, off the reservation. The only thing I can think of is he's decided who enemy number one is. And it doesn't matter to him whether he's offshore, onshore, right. in public, in private, alone, press conference or whatever. It's that bunch that keeps persecuting him. Mm-hmm. And there's an important distinction between what Russia did in the 2016 election and holding them accountable and exposing yeah. that and any allegations of collusion between the Trump administration mm-hmm. and Russia. And I get he can't see that distinction, yeah, right. but it's important to do so because it's entirely possible that there was no collusion with the Trump administration. Shit is making it seem like. Exactly right. right? <laughs> his own behavior, his defense, almost defense of Putin makes it feel like there's so some So do these indictments. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, these don't circle in. They circle out. So yes. 19 months in, we're not getting closer. We're indicting people we'll never try, we'll never see, uh, we'll never penalize. Uh, this is, these are exemplary uh, indictments. They've got nothing to do with legal process. They're sending a message. The timing of it was, I think, appalling. Uh, these are not urgent, precisely because they're not in the United States and we're never going to try them. And the idea that these come out uh, almost immediately before uh, feels to me either like uh, a thumb in the eye provocation from DOJ uh, or worse yet, an effort to steer foreign policy. Um, 
the, the U.S. attorneys have a rule, uh, an unspoken one. You don't indict close to an election and change the election. And it seems to me a corollary of that rule would be you don't indict close to a major foreign uh, excursion mm -hmm. and tilt the scales there. Uh, I think they produced this response. I suspect there's people smiling at the DOJ that they in some ways produced that press conference. Mm -hmm. We got ourselves in his head again. Sure. Uh, that's there, troubling. I can see both ways here. There is some danger. Let's say they, for political reasons, for what you said, worrying mm -hmm. about his trip, they don't make these indictments and then do so after he returns. Mm -hmm. They could also get hit there to say, sure. why didn't you release these indictments before yeah. going? Does I, anybody I, think Eric Holder produces 12 indictments hours before Barack Obama gets on an airplane to have a summit? I mean, I think the answer is he's absolutely not going to do no, that. No, but I mean, I think the timing either way is not going right. to look good. I mean, then I, it just, it sounds like it's, you're trying, it's it's a vendetta at and that and point. I, I do wonder, and again, we, we're, we're guessing here, but I, I understand the critique if they held it till after he came back. It might be embarrassing as well. Why didn't you let it, why didn't you do this beforehand? You wait till I get back. So I, I, I don't know, but I wonder if they had to say, timing out the window, we're just going to do this as we do it. Because I, I, I don't know. I, I wonder In a well-oiled machine, here's where he announces the indictments. Trump does it from the podium standing next to Putin. What could yeah. possibly have been a more powerful message? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm going to return back to a country that's going to indict 12 people that work for you mm -hmm. for interfering with our election. Sure. Uh, I told you about this when we met privately. I'm telling the world about it now that we're meeting publicly. We can disagree about whether or not you think it's true, but you should hear right now when I go back, my Department of Justice is going to do this. That's a powerful message mm -hmm. from a coordinated set of political sure. entities. This was a, uh, a screw-up. But now Trump was briefed beforehand, though. He, he knew that this was coming, so he could have he put some pressure to adjust the date there. I, I'm of the opinion that, I, again, I don't know, but if I'm Mueller, this is, I'm damned if I go early, I'm damned if I go late, I go with whatever the schedule is. I, I, think, there's, I think they were going to get critiqued either way on this one. But, I mean, it, it, Tom brings up a good point. If these are people that are, we're never going to see at trial and we can't really do anything about it what is what is the purpose of doing it now on the part of the doj this i, I mean close to trump's trip right yeah. as as paranoid and conspiratorial as it sounds it does sound slightly like there was political motivations behind it to some extent or at least institutional motivations there's sure. going to come a time when Mueller concludes his investigation god only knows when that is he could have done it then we're not rushing to indict because we want to arrest. Mm -hmm. We're not rushing to indict because we think that's a way to stop them from doing this again, that is, those 12 guys. Uh, we're not rushing to indict, period. So why'd we rush? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so here's how you solve the yeah. afterwards problem. Do it in six months. Do it as a part of your wrap-up program. Do it as a part of indicting the president if you think you're going to do that. Mm -hmm. I guess I just don't see any plausible explanation for doing it a day and a half before a summit when there's no urgency. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether it's, it's like... I'm not defending the press conference, sure, no, no, believe no, no, me. No, yeah. no, 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 no I'm just no, saying that there's not. a lot of ugliness in this entire set of events this week, and this is one of those dimensions. Mm -hmm. It's, I do wonder, and it, the timing is really interesting, and I don't know. And It's entirely possible that that was just the flow of when indictments are coming, right? And, and if you are... If you're the FBI and you know and you're thinking about the Clinton uh, fiasco, releasing information, not releasing information, are we doing this and not doing this? If any memo that Mueller is doing, if they're allowing the political process 
to influence their decision, that's going to be attacked. And you know that's going to come out at some point. So I wonder whether he's not just saying, we're plowing ahead regardless of of the political realities. Because if we make a decision based on those political realities, we're going to get hammered. And again, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't either. We're guessing. I'm just not sure what the flow of indictments sure. looks like. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, I, th- there isn't some rule of thumb sure. other than you shouldn't be political. Mm-hmm. And, and it feels like the only thing they did was to find the exact time in, in uh, American history where these would be most political. Mm-hmm. Now, one could if also... If there is a flow, <laughs> right. you might divert it so it doesn't sure. do that if there's a better way to do it. All right. I'm back on the bandwagon of it actually being the deep state. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it could also be helpful. I mean, so think about this way. If Trump had pushed Putin, this is evidence for him to do so. I think to Tom's sure. point, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah. release these indictments. You give Trump some evidence, some ammunition to go to Putin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess if we circle back to the, the press conference, that he could have used that. That could have mm-hmm. been a... I know it's uncomfortable as a president to confront somebody on the global stage like this, but he had to do that. And this would have provided that him. We agree completely. Yeah, yeah, this would have provided some some evidence or some support to do that. To say mm-hmm. this is where my my Department of Justice is. Uh, and it, again, it was it was kind of shocking that he didn't do that. I don't think he can. I think he found the one person who he can't alpha. <laughs> He's kryptonite. Yeah, yes. like, he yeah. just he can't. There's nothing he can do. Like uh, Putin can outplay him in any any scenario, and has in every scenario. And you think about he, you know, this make America great again, make America Seems strong. Enamored. He talks about how weak Obama was, and we can be critical of Obama's how he handled Russia. And I think there's there's good grounds to do so. Eighties called they want their foreign policy back, <laughs> right? But he's arguing that he's the toughest president ever on Russia. That's just a joke when you think about you know Reagan and Bush and all of those others, Kennedy and whatnot. Uh, this was this was he was weak. He was incredibly weak and mm-hmm. folded in that moment. You can make a case. And, and I just I raise this again to, to sort of mm-hmm. let's pull the other side. You can make a case that the things he has done to Russia are sufficiently aggressive that they in some ways ameliorate this horrifying uh, press conference. Um, he's armed the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obama refused to do that. Bush refused to do it. Uh, he's expelled 60 or some odd diplomats. Uh, I don't recall that happening during Bush or Obama's uh, terms. He's increased defense spending significantly. Uh, There are ways in which, uh, back to your point, Nick, uh, here's where Putin lost. That is, he may have uh, made this president uh, a difficult job, but it seems to me he has triggered a set of responses uh, that are hard on him. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're a much stronger economy than Russia. I don't see him easily increasing defense spending. Mm Uh, we've made it harder for him in Ukraine. We've made it harder for him in Syria. We've killed Russians mm-hmm. in Syria. That's not something Obama did either. So I, I'm not an apologist for Trump. God knows. But but I guess I would point out that that there's a more nuanced argument here, and it is sure. let's if if all you focus on is a catastrophe of a press conference, you miss some of the things that might be moving in another direction. Well, I, that's I, go so ahead. You, no, no, no. I I mean I think that's that's the issue more than anything. It's. I agree with every. I agree with all those points. The my, I guess, counterpoint to that is nobody gives a shit about that because we're dealing with this stuff on a daily basis. Right. Realistically, I don't think anybody pays attention to sanctions on on Russia or arming the Ukrainians or or even killing Russians in Syria. Nobody pays attention to that on a daily basis. And yeah, absolutely, Russia is not even close to the economic power that the U.S. is. But because of this 
infighting and just constant gnawing away mm-hmm. at the, you know the stability of the system mm-hmm. they're outplaying with a much worse hand that's like, an important point I, yes. I, I, and that's what that's what bugs me more than anything yeah. we should Amen. be blowing them out of the water yeah. left yeah. and yes. right Amen. and this is not it's not what we're seeing at all mm-hmm. this is important and i think to tom's there's an important distinction here <laughs> trump does that to us there's an important distinction between trump's rhetoric and the administration itself mm-hmm. the administration has been very hawkish on russia mm-hmm. whether it's sanctions arming the ukrainians all of that mm-hmm. and you look at the individuals within the administration pompeo um, oh, why can't I think of Mustache Man? Uh, the Bolton. Nat- Bolton, John Bolton. All of those guys <laughs> are hardline anti-Russian. But then you have Trump's rhetoric, which is so divergent from where the rest of the administration is. And again, it's hard to figure out what policy is. If I'm NATO at this point, I don't know what's going on. Right. Because after the NATO conference, you've got Mattis and a whole bunch of other foreign policy officials, diplomats from the United States going around saying, don't worry, we still believe in NATO. We still Mm -hmm. believe in this alliance. We're still Mm anti-Russia, even though the president is behaving in ways that are exactly the opposite. So it it just makes, I don't know, it just makes it so much more difficult to conduct productive foreign policy when there's this disconnect between what the president is saying and what the administration is doing. Mm -hmm. Here's a question for you. I I miss Phil's uh, input on this one, too. I, I thought to myself as I watched this whole thing, diplomacy's dead at least as to interactions with uh, despots. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we can pretend there's diplomacy with Russia, but I, I, how many years has it been since there was real, serious diplomatic negotiation that produced results? Mm-hmm. Yeltsin? Uh, that's my, that was my first thought. I was thinking Yeltsin-Clinton. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I, one of the worries I have is that, that I don't know what is replacing that. So when you've got people like Assad, Kim, Trump, Putin, uh, and, I, you know, I, I don't mean to yeah. compare them, you know, sure. apples to apples. I guess what I mean to say is none of them seem much interested in diplomacy. They seem interested in, uh, you know, let's use the legal term here, the unitary presidency, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I make the decisions around yeah. here. Uh, I don't know. Is there, is there room for diplomacy here? How do, you, how do you negotiate with a guy that's trying to ruin your government? Well, this is how your do you thing. negotiate yes, and send using, diplomats over there yeah. when you're talking to a guy who, and let's say this out loud, got into state election apparatus yes. too? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's terrifying. Yeah. Yes. Right? You know, with Putin, I think the, what was so frustrating about Trump's press conference was is that he's a bully. Mm-hmm. And I think there's room for negotiation. I think uh, Putin is, is very tactical. But you have to push back. And historically, when we've pushed back against him, there's room for conversation. But he's smart. He knows that I might. So, Give me an example. So I'm thinking about, okay, good, good question. Five examples. Five examples. Um, and I'm not playing gotcha at all. I'm just thinking, yeah. when was the last time we pushed back? Well, yeah. boy, we said, get yourself out of Ukraine. That didn't work. Get yourself out of Crimea. That didn't work. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm trying to figure out when was the last time somebody stood up to Putin, right? Not Russia, but Putin, and did so successfully. It's a it's, it's a really good question. I'm trying to think. Of, I can't come up with mm-hmm. a specific example now, but I will say that you know I, I'm thinking about the latter half of the the George W. Bush administration, which became mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. more not neoconservative, much more realist, and there was mm-hmm. there was a pushback against put, Putin there. But I can't I can't think of ways in which he responded. But I do think with bullies like that, you have to show some backbone yeah. to to prevent their activities. Mm-hmm. And I, I think 
there are real negative implications from what Trump did in Helsinki, not so much in terms of what we talked about, whether it's Crimea or Ukraine, but in Eastern Europe, Putin now knows that Trump is is less likely to be hawkish. And so uh, I think there are times there where he may try something that he might not have otherwise. So um, there is room for diplomacy, but I think there's also room for resolve and pushback mm-hmm. and, and Trump so, managed to find a way to do neither exactly <laughs> yeah, that's right, right. That's, that's, right. That, that's how we, that's it he, right, he talks about the importance of conversation and talking and yeah. I fully agree with Trump yeah. on that I never bought this argument that you shouldn't talk to your enemies you should you know whether it's Cuba North Korea talk to anybody uh, but it's it's what comes out of those conversations and it was just very I don't know I was saddened to see the way in which he folded well, uh, I, I mean I, I said this earlier this is your point more than anyone's point they they've gotten very smart at using the levers of democracy to keep themselves in the system yes and slow down the process of accountability and oh. the possibility mm-hmm. of losing their stranglehold on whatever they're controlling mm-hmm. and it doesn't seem like anyone whether you're talking about the US especially the Europeans have no stomach to push back against yeah. that and I you know I, I can't really blame them but at some point there has to be a breaking point where you go uh, no this it, it just it's not it's just not working between us anymore yeah. <laughs> well because Putin we he is now held up as a, a global international actor but Russia is a mid-level economy. They've got a bunch of nuclear weapons. That's it. That's it. Uh, The public is frustrated. They just had to raise the retirement age in Russia Mm -hmm. uh, to an age where most Russian men will die before they retire, right? I mean, he's facing intense political pressure. Don't worry. We'll get there, too. Right. They are, you know, just, just an average, weak global power and suddenly they've been elevated to this uh, global status which I think is also a mistake uh, yeah when, when Kim is up at night wondering who should I emulate Putin's got to be at the top of his yes. list mm-hmm. right a, a, a sluggish economy meaningless in in terms of almost every uh, capa- uh, dimension except he's got nuclear right. weapons yeah. mm-hmm. so why does Kim want him so bad boy did it work for Russia it gets you a seat at the table get you a seat at yeah. the table yeah. So, so, so you're Nick, saying we should be more hawkish that's then. Right, that's right. Okay. Can we play the, the clips of, oh, of Trump? Uh, this was yesterday, right? His, his yesterday, his explanation of his statement. So he gets widely criticized from across the ideological spectrum. Republicans are up in arms. Newt Gingrich attacks him. Fox and Friends. The, the Fox and Friends, one of the hosts, looks what? directly into the camera and says, M- Mr. President, you need to be stronger here, right? So mm-hmm. so he comes out, and Nick, and he fixes it, and so... <laughs> he fixes it. Should, which clip should we start with? Should we start with lots of people are saying this, or... I like lots of people, That's, We'll start there. Okay. We'll, yeah, so we got two of them. Right, short ones. see how loud this is going to be. And I've said this many times. I accept our intelligence community's conclusion that Russia's meddling in the... 2016 election took place. Could be other people also. Uh, there's a lot of people out there. It's <laughs> a lot of people out there, Nick. Jesus so he's he's walking back his statement, and he can't even do that right. He can't Just even read the fucking paper. <laughs> read it. That's all you have to do. And, and, and that's the thing. Nick's that's very exercise tonight. <laughs> because he, did, he had this statement. And he, he reads what he's supposed to read. And then it, it's like he can't control himself. Right. You know, it's it's Russia did this. I support my my intelligence community. That could have been others. There's lots of people. I mean, it's it's insane. He, he's his worst own enemy when he does stuff like that. Yep. 
and there's nothing to say about it. No. Like, it's, it's just it's just idiotic. Like yep. the fact that you would even suggest, and there are plenty of issues with the the intelligence community, especially in terms of this presidency. Sure, but to suggest that you don't trust your intelligence intelligence agencies over. Putin. Russia over Putin, <laughs> right? It's right. just insane. And even if you don't, to send the message right. to them that just, you just shut right. up, right. just shut up, right. shut up. Read the paper. All right, let's go. I know, well, but wait, uh, the sound soundbite we don't have that relates to uh, yeah. what we're just talking about is he said he could part the Red Sea, and <laughs> and he still couldn't be praised for it. Uh, well, I, this is the thing: he just cannot get out of his own way. Yeah. Yes. He could stand up and say, I've done 15 great things, and then he'll screw it up. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? I, a great Supreme Court nominee, and then I find a way to ruin it. Uh, it's just, it's incomprehensible. <sighs> I agree. Had at that press conference, had he stood up and called out Putin and said, this is unacceptable, Mr. President, you can't do this. He's a hero. Mm-hmm. The news coverage is entirely different. Right. Democrats have to get in line and say, you, that's what you needed to do, Mr. President. And that's all he had to do. It would have been uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I guess, you know, maybe the PP tape gets revealed. Who knows what? But I mean. Boy, and can you imagine the, the campaign commercial next time oh. around? You got Hillary with the misspelled reset button. You got Obama whispering, this is my last election, so we'll, things yeah. will go well. And you've got Trump yeah. standing up to Putin. He just can never do it right. You yeah. heard it, what he did with the, the transcript, right? Like he scrawled yes. in giant letters, no collusion. <laughs> no collusion. Only had one L, collusion only had one L in it. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. Like, you, just, um, you don't have to say it anymore. <laughs> can, we, can we go to double negative? Yeah, now? yeah we can <laughs> do that. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Let's see what this does. And I've said this many times. I accept our intelligent. That's a a lot of people out there. Why didn't it do the thing that I wanted it to do? (laughs) Stupid technology. Here we go. I thought it would be obvious, but I would like to clarify just in case it wasn't. In a key sentence in my remarks, I said the word would instead of wouldn't. The sentence should have been, I don't see any reason why I wouldn't or why it wouldn't be Russia. So... Just to repeat it, I said the word would instead of wouldn't. The sentence should have been, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be Russia. Sort of a double negative. (laughs) So you can put that in, and I think that probably clarifies things pretty good by itself. Clears it up, Nick. Clears Totally clears it up. Can we get him the definition of a double (laughs) negative? Okay. We probably shouldn't spend a ton of time on this, but how stupid does he think we are that he can come out and say, I meant wouldn't instead of would and we'd all be like oh okay well problem that, solved yeah absolutely let's nope. go home guys I, I, that <laughs> put the bo- pitchforks away that almost bothers me as much as what he said that he thought he could fix it by just you know going with the double no, negative like we said he is now officially a politician he's yeah it's just he's 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 the new bill clinton it, Tom, before we went on air, you mentioned you said you brought up Bill Clinton's famous. Yeah, it is <laughs> right. And so, what is means? Yes. Now, uh, this is a very appealing question to a lawyer, as you might imagine. I can think of fifteen definitions for the word "is" in the context of uh, a legal proceeding. Uh, but it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. It's, it's parsing words after the fact uh, to try and make yourself look better than you are. It's terrible. Do do we think? I mean, Republicans, and I, I will give them a lot of credit, came out right away, and not and not just the usual Corker Flake uh, and John McCain, but across the board, mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, very quickly condemned this, and a whole host of other Republicans. 
does it matter? I mean, does does anything come from this, or is this you know where there's have Republicans learned that you, when Trump does these extreme mistakes, you criticize them and and then can back away? I mean, what what do we think? Does anything come from this? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> don't yeah. Know. The, the silence is probably the answer. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I don't know what would come from it, but it, we're in such a weird place. Like, I, I, in any other scenario, in any other time, I would say yes, absolutely. There would be some sort of major response and, you know, change of behavior or something, you know, some noticeable difference. I, or, or, you know, a, a measurable difference in um, public sentiment. I'm not 100% sure that that's going to be the case anymore. The primary I, animating thing in this guy's life is the bunker mentality he yeah. feels. And I, this just reinforces it. Look at that. I had a very productive conversation with Vladimir Putin. Right. Very yeah. productive, I, I think, is exactly what he said. And no one gives me credit for it. I could part the Red Sea, <laughs> right. and I wouldn't get credit for that either. I mean, read the things. He's not going to change. <laughs> yeah. No, today he tweeted out, So many people at the higher ends of intelligence loved my press conference performance in Helsinki. Right? I mean, I think that's right. So maybe before we talk beers, real quick, if we start to think about his motivation, I, I see three potential motivating factors. You know, one is that he's so concerned about any criticism of his electoral victory that he just can't let any conversation go, that he's so insecure about this that if he acknowledges Russia helps, it may take that victory away. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation, or another one might be that, that Putin does have something, right? That there was collusion or that he has information, right? There, that's another option. The third one might be that, that Trump genuinely shares Putin's worldview, about globalization, about the European Union. I mean, so there might be a kindred spirit there. Um, what, do, what do you guys think is is driving him to do this or to, to take make these just terrible mistakes? I'd offer a fourth, yeah. and it is, I think he treats being erratic as a, a skill in negotiation. Mm -hmm. And I think he has seen it work for him in other places. Uh, he's a moving target. People don't know what to think. Think here, China and trade. Mm -hmm. Uh, he has backed China into a corner, and they don't know what to do with the Donald Trump that's right. tariffed uh, right. today and maybe not a tariff tomorrow, telling uh, I'm friends, sure. uh, but I'm still <laughs> America first. Keep him off guard. Uh, I, I, yeah. Now, I don't know that I like that any better than the, the three you offered, but I, I think he sees this as the art of the deal. Mm -hmm. uh, be erratic, be hard to predict, put people on the defensive. Uh, I don't think Putin feels like he's on the defensive, but... But I think Trump sees this as his style. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't. Does that account for that news conference that just went so far beyond erratic right. that I don't know if it does? But it's a fourth possible sure. explanation for the way he acts. Nick, get inside his head. Some drugstore psychology. To, I don't want to. Please don't make me. It's just. I want to poke Nick today and see what's, what's going to come out. I'm sweating. Oh. Um, I don't know. Like, and again, we we've talked about it. You want to think that. The Russians have something on them, and there's this big, you know, overarching conspiracy, and there's more to the story. I think it's, I think it's ego, and I do think it's he, it's mm -hmm. the art of the deal. He should probably talk to the guy who wrote the book, so he knows what the <laughs> hell that is. I, I just, it, it doesn't work. It, it, th that mentality is based on you constantly being the most alpha powerful person in the room and when you're talking to people like Putin or other despots who have been 
playing this game, but have been playing it with other people's lives and yeah. <laughs> and and entire countries, you're not the alpha in the room. Like you can't have that men mentality. On top of coming out of a a, pre a press conference saying that what realistically or a person who realistically amounts to a despot in you know the guise of a democratic leader was really strong and you know he vehemently denied any any of this so you know he's, he's just a good guy don't wink at him don't wink at any no world the leader, wink was weird didn't like the don't wink. do that no don't do that yeah <laughs> I, yeah i i i he got alpha mailed by putin that's did. for sure yeah like, i just i i don't think it's any more complex than his own lack of self-confidence and feeling of inadequacy and need to please people and i, I yeah i know yeah. that's which is is more of a frightening thought than, than yes. the alternative at this point I, I think all of whatever the explanation is it's troubling because this mm -hmm. was a major test for him and that's he right. failed it and whether it's whether it's collusion or whether it's ego or whether it's you know, insecurity or ignorance or incompetence, all of that is, is not good for U.S. foreign policy. Mm -hmm. no. Collusion has And listen, here's the last person who's yeah. uh, happy uh, post-mortem, Marx. Now, why you <laughs> Oh, ask? I love it. <laughs> Putin, uh, I think, is a committed despot, not a committed socialist. But let's just say this. American youth tilt socialists these days. Uh, and what has made a more compelling argument for socialism than undermining democracy here. Now, I don't think that was probably in Putin's mind when he did this, but I find myself really worried about the mm -hmm. idea that it reinforces uh, all of the numbers suggest that people don't trust our government. Yeah, sixteen percent or something like that think government works. It's 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 appalling, and Putin has advanced that. Yes, uh, it feels like several podcast episodes ago we tangled a little bit about whether or not it mattered that they uh, tinkered with our system. And I'm coming around to your view that it does. Uh, and, and this is one of the reasons why I think it does matter. It, it terrifies. The, the threat to democracy mm -hmm. terrifies me. Mm -hmm. Not just in the United States, but globally. Mm -hmm. I, I, I am right. genuinely mm -hmm. afraid of what could come. It, it, it doesn't take a lot of time to undermine those So now you got this norms. beautiful picture that Putin's painted. If democracy looks like that, yeah. and, and our lovely working yep. socialist order looks like this, right. you choose. China can make that same argument. China can make it. Oh. That's exactly mm -hmm. right. And kids are stupid. Too. Tough to they make in Venezuela know. these days. But that's let's right. Just say. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, Nick, we should talk beers. Yeah. I, I gave you the bottle because it's the fancy lettering. I have trouble reading the fancy lettering. <laughs> are you crazy? <laughs> really? <laughs> um. So we had a. It's from Illuminated uh, Brew Works. When they're out of where are they out of Chicago? Are they out of Chicago? That's fancy. Um, <laughs> Cafe Illumine, I think. Something? It sounds French. Yeah. It's it, got all it, those crazy, like, Phil's probably drinking shit. it in Paris right now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I think this is their national beverage. Um, yeah, it's a, a white coffee milk stout. Um, I, I'm not a stout guy. I'm, I'm just, I'm not. Um, and you seem to like the milk stout, or the white milk stouts less, right? Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and Tom was saying this before we started recording. It's it doesn't feel like a stout. It's kind of a lightish brown. It's very sweet. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I I don't know. I I wasn't I wasn't digging on this yeah. one too much. Tom, what, you're the expert on beer here. What, what did you think? Uh, I, I'm entirely on Nick's side on this one. It tasted to me like a coffee blonde ale. Mm -hmm. it, it had none of the roastiness or or depth of a, a stout or a porter. It's too sweet. So there's too much lactose yeah. in it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I thought the coffee is overpowered by the sweetness. Um, 
they're a good brewery and 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 they like to be on the eclectic end of the the scale but this one it seems to me pushed it too far that direction indonesian vanilla cinnamon and 10 pounds of lactose sugar that seems a like a lot, a lot of lactose, lactose. yeah I, I, similar, I, I struggle. I, a stout should look a certain way for me, and it's hard to get my head around it when it doesn't. So mm-hmm. I thought it was okay, but not, yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't recommend it. Nah. So, but we've got some good beers coming up. Yay. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, uh, if you want to find the beers that we try, uh, look us up on the Untapped app that you can download on iOS and Android. Uh, we're just Barstool Politics on there, so follow us on there. I'm going to just provide you with an update on my Untapped progress, my yes. friends, because... <laughs> I passed 5,000 unique beers on Untapped last that week. That is impressive and frightening. Yeah, it's both. <laughs> Probably to me, too. But 5,000 beers. That's good. That is, That's really good. I think we have, like, 50. We're getting there. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> All right, should we switch topics? Yep. Let's jump to, to our Supreme Court nominee. So a little over a week ago, and that's the other thing. It, he, his, Trump nominated Kavanaugh t- 10 days ago? I mean, it's uh, that's stunning. It feels like July 9th. I barely remember it. Months ago. (laughs) By the way, so a little over a week ago, President Trump nominated Judge Brett Kavanaugh to fill Anthony Kennedy's seat on the Supreme Court. Kavanaugh is a politically connected member of Washington's conservative legal establishment. He's currently, excuse me, a federal appeals court judge and previously served as a legal aide to President George W. Bush, was an investigator of uh, Bill Clinton, helped write the Star Report, and was even involved in Bush-Gore case from the 2000 presidential election. So he's, he's been very, very active. President Trump described him as, quote, one of the finest and sharpest legal minds of our time and declared him a jurist who would set aside his political views and apply the Constitution as written. We can only assume that Brett Kavanaugh is the long-lost relative of barstool politics senior legal analyst Tom Kavanaugh, Tom, other than spelling his name wrong, what should we know about Kavanaugh, his nomination, and how it might affect or impact the court going forward? Well, first that I've been to Ancestry.com. It turns out he's my 23rd cousin. (laughs) (laughs) So this is as close to being on the Supreme Court as I'm ever going to be. Well, I just thought to mention, because it seems that the press has already seized on the narrative that this is going to be the most acrimonious confirmation hearing maybe in history. Uh, to say a, a couple things about hearings, because people might not know this. The first thing is that, that is, there's no requirement that any hearing be held, and for most of American history, there wasn't. Uh, there were uh, short conversations in the Senate, but it wasn't until 1916, when Louis Brandeis uh, was nominated, that there was an extended hearing uh, of a public nature. So there's certainly congressional action or Senate action, but but... 1916, so relatively recently. That's surprising. Mm -hmm. So there's always been a vote, but there didn't have to be a hearing. There could be Senate deliberation, but that's different than the high-profile, televised, uh, you know, what what goes on now. Uh, Brandeis didn't appear at, uh, because it was not ever the case that uh, nominees appeared. Uh, He had a surrogate who, who spoke for him. Uh, the first person to appear was in 1927 when Felix Frankfurter was nominated. The hot dog guy. Uh, the hot dog guy, right. The civil libertarian <laughs> who was a little too civil and a little too libertarian for the Senate. And he actually was the first to sit down uh, on the record and talk to the Senate. The big watershed, if 16 and 27 uh, were, were watershed dates, of course, is 1987 when Robert Bork's nomination was uh, uh, a turning point, really, I think you can argue, from which we can't come back. And I forget whether you're for or against Bork. It's a big deal that we have shifted the way we think about these hearings. 
because it was at that hearing that Joe Biden announced really for the first time that it was appropriate to reject a Supreme Court nominee on the basis of their political, or I should say their judicial philosophy, as opposed to competence and character, which had always ever been what the Senate looked at. Uh, Do you have appropriate legal credentials and competence, and are you a person of character? So why is Felix Frankfurter there? Uh, Too much civil libertarian stuff, maybe doesn't have the the character of a, a Supreme Court justice. So Bork changed everything, and and in some ways you can argue Biden changed everything when he put on the table the idea that it was entirely appropriate, uh, and I'm not saying there's a constitutional reason why it's not, but put on the table that it's entirely appropriate to reject a person because of what they think. I think the framers would disagree. Uh, We've built into the process that an elected president makes this nomination, and I think the framers had in mind that the president at any given time would reflect in his nominee or her nominee Um, their philosophy. Uh, I think Biden's position is inconsistent with the way thoughtful people would interpret the Constitution. Again, the Constitution doesn't say character and competence. The Senate's always said it because we understood that a president was elected to do this, and we shouldn't be surprised when a president does it in a way that's consistent with what he or she believes. Mm -hmm. So I just thought to start with confirmation. You you want to fight about that a little bit? (laughs) You know, Part of it, so I had a couple a couple of thoughts on that, it, it, directly and indirectly. One is that it feels as if this not that the nomination that I, a couple of things. One, Republicans have gotten better at this. Uh, that they now nominate individuals who they are much more sure are going to be conservative long term. Right? I mean, you're not going to see any more Anthony Kennedys. You're not likely to see uh, Souter. I'm trying to think of others that were more kind of the moderate Republican. Well, you're not going to have Blackman, Brennan, right, or that's O'Connor. Brennan, that's what I was thinking. Who, right, who so were O'Connor, all Republican yeah. nominees and who all turned out to be, in varying degrees, liberal or yes. very liberal. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing about that is, is so here's the other thing. Is there, do you think this nomination process, is there going to be a conversation about his qualifications or his views? Because I, I, I don't know if that's a productive line of argument for the Democrats because he clearly the Federalist Society did a good job putting this list together to say these are qualified people these are Mm -hmm. people who have a history now you may not agree with their judicial philosophy and you may be deathly worried about the political implications Mm -hmm. of those judicial philosophies but it's hard to argue that Brett Kavanaugh shouldn't be a legitimate conservative nominee well I'm gonna argue this yeah which is which is a, a variation on that I don't think Brett Kavanaugh is as different from Kennedy as lots of people do. Interesting. Partly because I think Kennedy is more conservative than people perceive him to be because they've focused on uh, same-sex marriage decisions, which in terms of social policy are liberal. Uh, But Kennedy sided with the conservatives more often than he did the liberal justices. And I can imagine Kavanaugh being kind of similar in that regard. He wrote uh, the, de- the decision that became the basis for the Affordable Care Act tax ruling uh, that uh, John Roberts wrote. Uh, that is by no means a conservative way of thinking about the uh, Affordable Care Act. I don't mean to say he is Kennedy. I mean to say I think Trump did something really smart here, mm-hmm. and that is he appointed somebody who's not so completely different than his predecessor that you could make the case, well, this is trying to put just as an example, Samuel Alito in Kennedy's seat or Clarence Thomas in Kennedy's seat. Uh, He's neither of them. 
uh, he's he's much more like let's say John Roberts who now shifts to the middle yes uh, as Kennedy leaves but I I think sitting just directly next to him not physically because yeah. he'll sit all the way at the outside but on those they have those judicial sitting very rankings. next to him is going to be uh, Kavanaugh so that's interesting because I was going to ask you about that because I've seen a bunch of the predictors where he's going to fit along those lines and they have Kennedy very close to the center mm -hmm. and then Roberts further to the right mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, Alito and Thomas all the way to the right and some mm -hmm. of them had Kavanaugh close to Alito and Thomas you don't think mm -hmm. he's that far to the right I don't uh, I think what I'd argue is that there are uh, a handful of ideologues on the, uh, the court I, I don't want to say that in a negative mean mm -hmm. way but uh, Alito is to the right what Ginsburg is to the left yeah. uh, they have a prism they see things through uh, and it is primarily, it seems to me, ideological and political and not legal, uh, if that distinction yes. makes sense. Um, Gorsuch is certainly further right, I'd argue, than Kavanaugh is. Uh, his previous decisions suggest that, though there are fewer of them. Kavanaugh's got 300 appellate mm -hmm. decisions. Uh, that's an enormous wealth yes. of information for people prior to a hearing. Uh, so I think you've got Alito with Thomas at one end, you've got Sotomayor and uh, Ginsburg at the other, Kagan slightly to the right of those that are on the left, yep. uh, Gorsuch slightly to the left of those on the right, and then you've got this cluster in the middle, and it's a really interesting court these days. So, Breyer, okay. Kavanaugh, Roberts, who I think, uh, I'm not suggesting he's not conservative. I'm suggesting he's not Alito. I'm mm -hmm. suggesting he's not even Gorsuch. And I think when the hearings start, and people start taking apart some of these appellate decisions, uh, just imagine that Rand Paul is going to start talking about privacy. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got some really eclectic views on, on privacy. He supports, for example, metadata collection. Um, so I, I guess my point is I don't think that he is uh, a hardline, far-right uh, conservative justice, let's say as uh, uh, Barrett would have been. Sure. Uh, maybe even uh, Kethledge. So... I think this was genius. And again, I'm thinking to myself, how does Donald Trump always manage to do something smart and then 35 stupid things yeah. that cover up the smart one? It's going to be uh, nearly impossible, even, even without a filibuster, for principled people to say, here's a guy that can't be confirmed. But he ruled against the EPA, and all they want to do is protect <laughs> the frogs and the fish. He's, but he has also fallen down on the side of environmentalists yeah. in, in a couple of different that decisions. That was a joke, by the way. Oh, okay, I got, I got it. No, and really, my my I guess my my more meta point with that is that's the narrative that's going into this. Is it's a there are liberal viewpoints that don't have a lot of depth to them that are trying to tear apart the decisions that he's made without looking at the judicial what's the word um, uh, complexity of it mm -hmm. and thoroughness of mm -hmm. his decision. Because I think the decision was based around the concept that the EPA was putting rules in place, and he ruled that it was the duty of Congress to put those rules in place, mm -hmm. as opposed to the institutions. Sure. Yeah. He does not call himself an originalist. This is an important thing to say. He doesn't use that word about himself. He says you should interpret statutes as they're written, and you should interpret the Constitution as it's written with a view uh, and an understanding of history and precedent. Mm -hmm. That should be language that's very appealing to both sides. Can you explain for the listeners what that means to, to, to be an originalist and maybe his position, how that is distinct from, from an originalist? An original. wants to make all decisions using the Constitution as the framers 
wrote it and understood it. And uh, the far right in the court typically thinks that way. So uh, if, if people are familiar with religious fundamentalism, mm -hmm. originalism is to the law what fundamentalism is to religion. Uh, and then on the far left, of course, there's the, to use the Breyer phrase, living constitution. That is that it evolves, it changes, it adapts, it meets current needs. Um, both sides have obvious weaknesses. That, I mean, that is to say you can be for one and for the other or against one and against the other. And candidly, I'm kind of happy with this pragmatist middle that might be Roberts, to a degree Breyer, uh, and maybe Kavanaugh, who who see the Constitution as an anchor, uh, but not uh, in the same way somebody might say the Bible is the only sure. word of God, sure. right? right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I, it feels to me like this is, this is not a guy who's going to be subject to the kind of criticisms, let's say, that Thomas or Alito were. Um, when you don't invoke the word originalism, Scalia did, Alito did, uh, Roberts did not uh, and would not describe himself that way. I think people who are worried about somebody being so far right that he's dangerous should take a little comfort from the way he describes himself. And listen, with 300 appellate decisions, it's going to be very difficult for him to describe himself one way, having ruled in another. Sure. I, I mean, what's the political capital to be gained on the Democrat side to not fight this tooth and nail? Because it seems like regardless of what his qualifications are necessarily, the narrative that people that tend to lean left or are, are going to listen to that particular viewpoint, they're not necessarily going to care about, you know, the 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 breadth of his legal knowledge and, and precedent. And it's about this is someone that Trump nominated. So clearly he's a piece of shit. And it doesn't matter what his decisions are. I don't. I don't know if it's so much that, Nick. I think it would be. Yes, it is. <laughs> I, I think there's still frustration on the left about Merritt Garland. Sure. And so when you. So it, it's, it's a vendetta. It's is what that. Well, saying. it's that. It's that contrast. When you look at the court, <laughs> and and the left looks at this and sees the court, and we can probably talk about this in a few minutes, where the court is going to go. Right. That is fundamentally different than if Merritt Garland were on the court right now. So that's I, true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, so I think that is. Part of, and in many ways, I think the Democrats' best argument, and I don't think it's a very strong one. I think I think Kavanaugh gets confirmed, and I, I don't see any reason why the fifty Republicans wouldn't vote to confirm Kavanaugh, the other senior legal advisor, obviously, right, uh, right. to somebody, yes. somewhere. Uh, <laughs> so, but I, I I do think there is is angst, and in some ways, legitimate angst about that Merritt Garland and saying this where the court is heading would be fundamentally different if it wasn't for Mitch McConnell. So I, I, mm -hmm. I think it it will be less about. About Brett Kavanaugh's, well, who he represents, than the, the the broader shift in the court that he will bring about. That's fine. But the yeah. Merrick Garland argument should should in some ways have uh, faded. That's the Gorsuch mm -hmm. seat, and listen, that fight's been had. Yeah. You know, Gorsuch is sitting in it. Garland isn't. I know Chuck Schumer called and told the president he should nominate Merrick Garland for this right, seat. Right. Maybe the most frivolous telephone oh. call ever made in the history of the world. Yeah, give it to Chuck um, for that. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but it'll come up again. But this is you're replacing Kennedy, who's a Republican uh, 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 nominee, uh, who took the Bork seat, yeah. incidentally. Uh, and I don't think you're moving with this justice so far right. You're, you're moving further right at yeah. Kennedy. Boy, you are not moving to Alito and Thomas territory, I think, with this sure. justice. Mm -hmm. I've got some questions, but I know there are a few other things you wanted to bring up well, before. I, well, I, yeah. 
I thought to say the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yep, that's right. good. Yeah. <laughs> because there's some good, there's some bad, and some ugly. The good. He comes from the D.C. Circuit. That's the farm team for the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, with 300 opinions, we know more about this guy than we've known about essentially any of his predecessors in, in modern history. Uh, I, I think that's a big deal. And, and more importantly, of those 300, the Supreme Court has followed his rationale frequently. And I've mentioned in the case that was the most significant, the Affordable Care Act case. So this is somebody who has a long judicial history on a very important court and who the Supreme Court has generally said decides cases well. Second, he talks about the essential neutrality of the law. Uh, So again, he's not an originalist. He's somebody who says the law is essentially neutral, and our job is to be, and Roberts used this sort of metaphor in his hearing, a referee. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are not there to write the law. And I think that appeals not just to the the right. I think that appeals to a lot of centrists who don't want a court making law uh, uh, out of whole cloth. Third, uh, uh, he is, his, his animating principle in a lot of those decisions has been government structure, government power, boundaries, and three branches. So I think one of the things we could expect to see is the administrative universe curtailed much more aggressively. Uh, he sees a strong presidency, uh, but I don't think he sees unelected uh, administrative law as commensurate with statutory law passed by Congress. I think those are good things. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think most people would agree that as a general matter, uh, those would be good things about this nominee. Um, so, uh, But let me ask Bill, do you? I guess it depends on the issue a, bit, a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. So I think about, are we talking about environmental regulation? That would concern me a little bit. There are other areas where I wouldn't be so troubled by that. Uh, you know, labor rights. Uh, so I think those are some of the big issues you're seeing. Environmental issues on the left, they're concerned about what that means for environmental law moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, labor unions, uh, the power of... I, I think his judicial... Philo- here's the question for you. Is his judicial philosophy going to favor corporate interests, do you think, over labor unions? I mean, do we... There's been this shift. We see this, you know, ebb and flowing over time, and I think now we're in a mov- movement where it feels like corporate interests are starting to rise against labor unions. Will he further that? That's. Let's go back to something we said mm-hmm. when we talked about the Janus decision uh, and even Epic. Uh, I don't think he favors corporations, although you're going to hear lots of that in the hearings. Mm-hmm. I think he says it is the province of Congress to make judgments about things like arbitration, the Arbitration Act, sure. the National Labor Relations Act, and that sort of thing. He will read very closely to the text. If it's not, the Trump versus Hawaii is another one. He'll read closely to the text. If it's not there, uh, then Congress can fix it. I don't think that's pro or con corporation or pro or con labor union as much as it is a recognition that this is the role of Congress, mm-hmm. not the role of the court. Is it going to operate against labor unions and uh you know, maybe uh, uh, in other ways favor corporations. I think it will. Sure, but that's Congress's that's Congress's fault, is... not the courts. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, if the alternative then is to have, say, Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor interpretively reading statutes to say things they don't, to square them with the Constitution and bring about a result. Now we're back to originalism. That's too living a constitution for a lot of people. It is for me. I recognize that, that there's legitimate difference of agreement on this, or I'm sorry, difference of opinion on this. 
I don't think he favors corporations. I think he gets a tight reading sure. and says, Congress, do your job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. The last good is that there is uniform agreement that this is a guy who values collegiality. And uh, he has lots of connections on this court, clerk for Kennedy, friends with lots of the, uh, the justices. Um, but th there was some thought that when Gorsuch started, he had sharp elbows. And, and the thinking here relative to Kavanaugh is that he never has uh, and won't on the court, and that he may bring a spirit of collegiality to the court that Roberts very much wants to encourage, and that could be a really wonderful thing. I'm interested about that, because there have been a number of pieces written talking about him, not only in terms of how he's a nice guy, mm -hmm. uh, he's been very proactive in promoting women mm -hmm. uh, throughout the court More systems. More female clerks than male. Yes. Uh, also, I mean, I've heard a couple things that, you know, he plays in a basketball league, he's fun to play with, he's a nice guy. Does that matter? <laughs> so, because there's part of me that thinks that oftentimes what happens is that you have a conservative justice and then liberals write a piece and say, oh, he seems like a nice guy. And I, that, I'm glad he's a nice guy. I prefer that over somebody who's not. But in terms of a judicial philosophy and the court itself, does that have a meaningful difference? I, I think the answer to that question is categorically yes, okay. it matters. It worked for Kennedy, mm -hmm. who was uh, as, as civil and decent and collegial a person as there was, and who cobbled together majorities on things like Obergefell and some of those other cases where, uh, I don't mean to say that they were nine to nothings or something like that, but it does matter that you can walk down the hall and talk to the other side. Yeah. It matters enormously, especially in a, in a very tightly knit society. There's nine of them. Yeah. They don't tell us how they decide. They don't tell us what they say. Conferences are absolutely private. I think it matters enormously if around that table of nine, sure. people like each other and yeah. care about each other. And every indicator of his career is that he will be that sort of justice and not, and I don't mean to say something terrible about Gorsuch, but it, but it appears as though he is a guy that marches to the tune of his own drummer and doesn't much care whether people agree with him, disagree with him. Uh, he doesn't have a sense, it appears, uh, of rank. Uh, you know, he's straight in there. He'll talk over the chief justice, you know, the same way he'd talk over me, sure. I suppose. I bet Kavanaugh won't do that. Uh, and, and does that matter? I think it does, because in the end, you've got to get five votes. And, and so the court can influence absolutely. each other. That's good. The bad. Or you were good, bad, the ugly? Yeah, I'll go to the bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and again, I'm trying to find generic things here. He's going to move the center of the court to the right. And he makes Roberts the fulcrum rather than Kennedy. And, and I think for some people that's bad. And I guess even for me, what I'd say is I think there's been a very delicate balance on this court. And the evidence of that is the, the number of five to four decisions. And I'm not sure as a coalescing conservative end becomes more powerful that I love the idea that the balance is changing. Not quite sure, you know, maybe the others weren't entirely good. Mm -hmm. Maybe this isn't entirely bad, but it's at least worth mentioning on that. Um, Second, he appears to have some hostility to criminal defendant rights. Uh, so, so he's not somebody that has spoken favorably about things like Miranda uh, uh, and, and sort of that cluster of decisions where criminal defense rights, um, and, and important ones, I think, uh, the court has spoken to. Uh, add to that a third, and that is he does not appear committed to, and I know this is a theme I've brought up several times, privacy issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, he couldn't think of any good reason not to do metadata collection. Mm -hmm. uh, I can think of lots. <laughs> uh, so I worry, and I think 
people on all ends of the spectrum. Rand Paul's very much on record saying he's very worried about Fourth Amendment jurisprudence when, when Kavanaugh gets there. And, and I would share that worry. The last, uh, and, and I guess I'd say this is a bad for those that see this as a Trump victory, is that he wrote the Affordable Care Act case that became the thing that preserved the Affordable Care Act. And I only say that uh, to say this, he's not far right. Uh, and if you think he is, you just need to look at the 300 opinions and start with that one, mm-hmm. where, where he uh, preserved a thing, or at least gave the rationale for preserving a thing, that most on the right were desperate to see killed. Sure. So I'd, I'd throw that, uh, those out as the bads. Um, maybe just the ugly, because well, I'm anxious. To, oh, go ahead. Well, sorry, sorry. Just a quick question, because I think one of the things that's most fascinating for me. So I, when I look at this nomination, I, I think about two different things, and they, they strike me differently. So from a legal perspective, I'm fascinated by the shift in the court. From a political perspective, I think about the policy outcomes. I'm a bit more troubled, right? So, but let's let's go to the the former, the idea of what's going to happen to this court. I think we talked the last time you were on about Kennedy being the the center, mm-hmm. and now you're right. That shifts to John Roberts, mm-hmm. and that means that the court moves to the right. If he's the center, it's to the right. That's right. And and even if if Kavanaugh isn't to the Alito level of right, the court itself is moving right. Now I'm thinking about all of these justices, other than Thomas. But he may retire and may be replaced on Trump's watch. Mm-hmm. They're going to be there for generations, right? This is a court that's going to be there, and there's going to be a conservative majority likely for years to come. Mm-hmm. Is there a possibility? Well, well, uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thomas is old, and uh, he might retire. Uh, and let's just say in the next presidential term, mm-hmm. whomever is in that office may have a chance to replace maybe as far right a justice as there is. I think you're probably right uh, yeah. that there's a conservative court going forward. I don't think excessively conservative yet. Okay. Could be. If Ginsburg goes and Trump replaces her, uh, that then, is, mm-hmm. that's the watershed. So then that balance. So, let's, so here's, okay. as I was thinking about this this week, if the court moves in that way, it's entirely possible that the court is more conservative than the country as a whole. Right. And so we don't know where the country is going to be. But if you think about there's some data on demographics suggesting mm-hmm. that the country is moving yeah. left of center yeah. and the court would be moving right of center. And you've on campus, you've given a fascinating talk about the Supreme Court being the most and least democratic mm-hmm. institution of governance. And I thought about that this week to say th- to say that the court itself will be to the right. Is there if I am John Roberts, am I worried about potentially being portrayed as a Warren court, right? I mean, so the, but the opposite. Exactly. Yeah. Instead of being a liberal court, now you're going to be mm-hmm. a conservative court yeah. because it's likely that a whole host of rulings mm-hmm. are going to benefit the, the conservative cause. And does he worry about the court drifting so far right that it's further right than the country itself is in terms of its, its, global, yeah, its positioning? It's a, it's a great question. Um, this is a minority president. Mm-hmm. That is to say he didn't win the popular vote. Uh, appointing what are effectively minority justices. And that is to say that if you add up all the votes that the senators who voted for Gorsuch versus all the ones who voted against, there are far more voters who elected the senators who voted against Gorsuch than there are voters who elected the senators who voted for. So it's a minority president, and you could make the case a minority justice. And this one's likely to go the same way. 
Um, is John Roberts worried? I suspect he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything about him since the moment he was nominated suggests that he sees the legitimacy of the court as his primary responsibility as chief justice. And I think he worries that a court is illegitimate where it is heavily tilted in a direction that doesn't allow for real debate among the nine justices. Um, I'm not worried about that with Kavanaugh. I, I, this makes Breyer so important. Uh, here's the guy that's moderate left, uh, egghead smart, and who, uh, if he can make the case to Kavanaugh, I think uh, can shift decisions hmm. uh, because he's also made the case to Roberts. But again, if Ginsburg goes, uh, and, and she'd be sure. the one most likely on the left, now that converse, now Breyer doesn't matter anymore. Right. Frankly, in some ways, Kavanaugh and Roberts matter less because you've got a solid four votes at yes. the other end for anything. Mm-hmm. And all you got to do is pick off one of the other two. So that, that is Roberts right, or, or right. Kavanaugh. And what worries me most is something like voting rights laws. Mm-hmm. So you've got a lot of southern states and even states like Wisconsin mm-hmm. where you've got a situation where Republican legislatures are making it more, are passing laws making it more difficult for certain segments of the population to vote. And, and most of those benefit Republicans. Well, I mean... Careful, Bill. <laughs> well, I, I think the motivation... Yeah, abortion's a better example. Okay. That is where you have states passing. Uh, here's how Roe versus Wade is not in danger, and I, uh, mm-hmm. it's going to be a big part of the hearings. And and listen, Elizabeth Warren knows this. All these people, Roe versus Wade is not going to be overturned. Neither is Obergefell. We're going to hear lots and lots about that. But uh, Kavanaugh is a guy that believes in stare decisis. So does the rest of the court. This is just not going to happen. But here's what could, and here's what I think the conversation ought to be about. States are right now, we said this the last time I was here, pretty aggressively curtailing abortion rights. Uh, And if you're somebody on that side of the equation, and and I don't want to wade into whether we're pro or or con, um, a court that affirms state statutes that make access harder is what you should be worried about, not overturning Roe versus Wade. Does that make sense? It does make sense, yeah. It, it, so there's an, there's an interesting sense here in which the states, federalism, once again, is going to become really, really important. Absolutely. The states are going to start passing statutes to test these things. And I suspect that there are people that think they're going to try and overturn Roe altogether. I can't, you can't get Roberts to vote for that. No, I, you can't. I, it is impossible mm-hmm. for me to imagine Roberts voting to overturn Roe versus Wade, the super precedent. Uh, it, I, I just don't <laughs> yeah. see it happening. Mm-hmm. I don't see Kavanaugh voting for that. I'm not even sure I see Gorsuch voting for it. Sure. No, I, I genuinely worry about the legitimacy of the courts. And mm-hmm. so why I bring up the voting rights issues, if, if you oh, have... Sorry, no, 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 no. I think, I think they're, they're, they overlap. If you think about the way in which conservatives... It, let's, say, let's say in the South, conservatives continue to pass laws that allow Republicans to stay in power. And a handful of northern states do that as well. Or maybe they don't even... The perception is that. And the court affirms that. It, it becomes... You're going to have a situation where voters are angry at the court as a political institution, mm-hmm. and and, and, I, I, and they already are. Yes, right. it, I mean, the, by far the most trusted branch of government yes. still, but by a far lower percentage than it was ten years ago. And mm-hmm. my fear is if the Supreme Court becomes Congress, huh. that, that I mean that's that's a, a dire situation. It's terrifying. And I, I do I, I totally agree with you. I think Roberts is deathly worried about that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I don't know if he shifts into Kennedy's position in the center, but I do wonder whether he doesn't think about strategically trying to pull those justices into a more moderate view. And I, I don't know. I, 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 I share your worry. Yeah. And I think Roberts absolutely, I, I think he's already doing that. Uh, he pushes, as everybody, you know, Warren pushed for unanimity in Brown versus Board sure. and separated it into two decisions precisely so he could get the 9-0 yeah. on the first one. Bussing and, and that's, the actual mechanics of it was a lot harder and not 9-0. Um, I, it feels to me like Roberts is probably relieved that mm-hmm. Kavanaugh's next, but terrified about what happens in the next five or six or seven years. Sure. So to our liberal... And, and frankly, I think he's been so good so long if somebody was going to be in that role trying to navigate that difficulty, I'm glad it's somebody who's got a lot of years, 13 now for Roberts, I believe it is, in that chief justice's seat, existing relationships with everybody on the court. Uh, it, it'd be horrifying if it was a new chief. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, Roberts has a lot of capital, it feels like to me, with, with the ones that remain. That's interesting. So to our liberal listeners out there, you would say they shouldn't be freaking out about Kavanaugh. <laughs> Not you, Kavanaugh. The other Kev- Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> well, I hope they're not freaking out about either. I, I get that both sides have have begun to understand that any justice who doesn't uniformly vote their way is horrifying. Mm-hmm. And the rhetoric about Kavanaugh. Just go back to the first topic. The rhetoric mm-hmm. about Trump. This is our Pearl Harbor. This is Oof. treason. Uh, and now you come to uh, Kavanaugh, uh, Kamala. What's her name? And California wouldn't even take the call oh, yeah. about, about mm-hmm. the nominee. Um, you've got Chuck Schumer thinking that Merrick Garland is, is a possibility. This is, we're overboard. Uh, and, well, we're overboard and I'm worried about it. Mm-hmm. My fear is we've drifted to a point where we're not going to have presidential Supreme Court nominees nom- uh, confirmed unless it's of the same party. Right. I mean, so so moving forward, let's say let's say at midterms, yes. the Democrats take the Senate back. Right. It wouldn't matter who Trump is going to nominate. Sure. They right. would hold that person and they could make the argument Merrick Garland. And there's some mm-hmm. some merit to that argument. But mm-hmm. uh, but I do fear that we've drifted down the road where the only way you're going to get a confirmation is if the president and the Senate are of the mm-hmm. same party. And it mm-hmm. by proxy becomes a political institution. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which will will push those nominees much further to the extremes mm-hmm. and you're going to see less Breyers, Roberts, Kennedys uh, and maybe even Kavanaugh's. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So lament the loss of the filibuster which was middle ground there. Yeah. yeah that allowed the minority party to have some uh, certainly problems with it but had, had the virtue of compelling the majority party to at least listen to the minority party. Yeah. But when you've got a here's go back to the rhetoric at the women's march this year before there was even a, an opening, the answer was oppose XX. Uh, mm-hmm. Think about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't even have a name yet. Mm-hmm. We don't even have an opening right. at the time it was said. But oppose XX. Well, boy, oh boy, that's not even 1987 with, with Bork. Mm-hmm. That's, to your point, yeah. uh, uh, pure, unadulterated party tribalism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. And I think the net effect of that is you're going to get more liberal and conservative justices, which to this idea, if you want a court that's calling balls and strikes, yep. 
it's more difficult. I mean, we yeah. shouldn't be naive. The court is a political yeah, institution. Absolutely. But the way in which politics influences that could get much, much worse. Mm-hmm. Sure. But if you had a cutout of a, a Republican president, which is to say, let's forget for the moment Donald Trump is the guy that nominated Kavanaugh. If you had a cutout and you didn't have all the baggage of fighting with NATO and Putin and I mean yeah. all the baggage, and it's sure. a lot of baggage, right? I think what a lot of people would say in the middle is, this is a really good choice. This isn't somebody who's an ideologue in the same senses that some of the, the nominees, Mike Lee, who's on the list of, of 25. It's a relatively moderate, uh, right of center, collegial, well-prepared, clearly competent uh, justice. This is not a bad guy. And in the same way, it seems to me, thoughtful people should be able to say, Elena Kagan, mm-hmm. uh, thoughtful, well-prepared, lots of experience. You might not agree with her, but it's very difficult to argue that mm-hmm. she was a bad nominee. I, the only bad nominee I can think of in my adult lifetime is Harriet Myers. <laughs> I was trying to think of her name the other day. Yes. catastrophically yes. stupid. Yeah. But that's the only one. I, I, I have no quibble with any of the ones Obama put on. Uh, Bush one, Bush two, Harriet Myers is is the outlier here, yeah. and I think I think Kavanaugh's the same thing. But you're right to worry. Yeah. What happens when it's not really anymore a presidential prerogative? It's it's a Senate plus president prerogative. I I, I mean, kind of to your point. Uh, while I think the majority, there are still plenty of thoughtful people in these positions that you know make a difference in these nominations. I'm not sure there are there's a dwindling number that can scream loud enough to scream over the people that are having an influence over the debate right now and that's what's really scary more yeah. than anything. Yeah. It doesn't matter again the the um uh you know the legitimacy the legitimacy of the person who is being nominated regardless of what party they're affiliated with it's what is good political capital at the time mm-hmm. and I, I, you know, I, that's infinitely more worrisome than mm-hmm. than any of this that we're talking about, yeah. at least in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So you're gonna you're gonna hear repeatedly: this is the end of women's reproductive rights. Right. It's the end of uh, same-sex marriage, uh, and, and these aren't true. They're mm-hmm. just simply not true. Is it possible there'll be limitations that are unpalatable to some relative to reproductive rights? I think it is. But overturning Roe versus Wade, boy, oh boy, I'd bet my last dollar right now. No. Should we get to the ugly? Yes. Because yes, I think you guys yeah, want to yeah, talk about this. Yeah, no, no, we, we're long, yeah, but this is the good. ugly. Let's do the ugly. Uh, white water. Uh, that's the last thing I think you're going to hear a lot about. Is this guy politically toxic? Uh, he, was, he was part of the Whitewater investigation, helped write the Star Report. Uh, this is not a guy who's outside the swamp, to use a, uh, a Trump uh, sort of thing. Uh, I have an answer for that. I'm not going to give it until I hear from you two on whether or not you think (laughs) the ugly is so ugly it trumps the good. So here's the thing. He is certainly a political figure in that he was involved, and I'm I'm guessing there's going to be a ton of time looking at his involvement in the Star Report, where he was involved in the impeachment, as well as his later shift in philosophy to say that, no, we should not be doing this to president. So I think that's going to be mm-hmm. a focus. 
I am less troubled. I, I think people can shift in their views and not have it be political. Mm-hmm. I think it's entirely possible that he was involved in the Star Report and upon that experience has said maybe we need some <laughs> deference to the president and that I don't think he should recuse himself from those decisions regarding Trump. I think all of that is is absolutely fine. The Whitewater stuff is, is more interesting. And I, I, again, I, I, I think it's more of a sideshow. I, I think he's a legitimate candidate. I am interested to hear what comes out, but I don't know. And I, I am not, I don't know. I, I'm guessing it's going to be ugly. <laughs> yeah. so. I, I would agree with that sentiment. I, I think that, again, the the discussion should be based around his judici- judicial decisions and his history with the courts and, you know, what his demeanor and precedence have been. I, Whitewater is... It's unfortunate. It was kind of a mess. I I don't necessarily see him, based on some of the decisions that I've researched and what you've talked about over the past hour and a half, is who he necessarily is. I I think it was a unique situation that wouldn't necessarily... Something to... uh, That kind of personal, weirdly um, uh, political situation would not necessarily present itself in the position that he would be in these nominees are political figures right you don't get to this level without playing the game and so to, to suggest and again i would i would prefer that they played the game on the left than on the right but i think it would it's hypocrisy to say that somebody who was involved in the shenanigans on the right is is any better or worse than those on the left that's right. just how you work your way up and and a lot of these guys that's their goal right i mean they realize they have to be involved in conservative or liberal politics and then work their way up the judicial circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, so ugly. I'm gonna just I'm gonna throw one more answer out there. I think you're both absolutely 100 percent right. Here's a third, and I hope this is part of the conversation. Judges aren't lawyers, and lawyers aren't judges, at mm-hmm. least in terms of discharging their duties. Lawyers are advocates, mm-hmm. and indeed, our uh, rules of professional responsibility charge us to be zealous advocates on behalf of our clients. And I think what you see when a person is uh, this is this is Mueller. This is his lawyers. They are zealously advocating, it seems to me, a position. And more importantly, in the star uh, uh, work and, and in some of these others, he's operating as a lawyer. That's how lawyers are supposed to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's an adversarial system where you're supposed to win. And it's judges that rein that in. And, and it would be really great if at these hearings, I'm not optimistic, I'm hopeful, there was a conversation about what is the role of a lawyer in the legal system and what's the role of a judge vis-a-vis those lawyers. The bottom line from my perspective is, his answer ought to be, I'm not asking to be special counsel mm-hmm. and I haven't nominated, I've not been nominated to be that. Uh, I'm not being nominated to be attorney general. Uh, I'm being nominated or I have been nominated to be a judge mm-hmm. and I understand the difference between those two things. So it's, this, this feels to me like a red herring that we're going to hear a lot about, to which there's an easy answer, but it could be a really great conversation. Sure. Oh. Mm-hmm. I know we have both liberal and conservative listeners, and I really appreciate you coming on, Tom, because I think you, you allow us to see things from a nonpartisan lens, and, and I, or at least, at least under, especially for our liberal listeners, to not be as freaked out by Kavanaugh as mm. they may be. They may still be. Well, and, and, I think, and again, I, I am sympathetic to the concern that liberals have, and I share many of them, sure, but sure. I think you are absolutely right. I am too. In, in talking about 
Kavanaugh as being distinct from um, the partisan divide at times. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nick, I know we've gone long, so we no. That's <laughs> this fine. is great. I, I, mean, I enjoyed. There this. was so much to talk about. Yeah. It's, it's no crazy. speed round and no Israeli blowtorches. Oh, do we want to talk about the <laughs> the beer real quick? Yeah, we should. Talk oh, yeah, oh yes, uh, Tom. Yeah, tell us about your second. Yeah. This beer was fantastic. Oh my gosh, this is real from Half Acre, uh, which is uh, again a Chicago brewery. It's it's maybe my favorite Chicago brewery. Uh, they do so much, so well, so often. Uh, it's an American ale. Uh, called Widge, W-I-J. It's got a little bit of lime. It's sort of citrusy. It's light. But uh, at the same time, it's got a ton of flavor. I just love this beer. There's heft to this beer. I mean, it's not like you're drinking a a Pilsner. You can tell the lime. Mm -hmm. It's... Yeah, it's pale, aley, almost, but not hoppy. Uh-huh. Uh, this was a... It's not a Corona with a lime squashed into right. the top of it. Or, it's just great. i got to go find some. It's so good. Oh. It's so good. Half, uh, you're absolutely right. Half Acre is a wonderful brewery. Mm-hmm. I, everything they do is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, on top of that, if you thought this discussion was fantastic, which it clearly <laughs> was, um, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Politics. Uh, uh, Barstool Paul, P-O-L. Uh, Facebook is at Barstool Politics. Um, beers that we try, uh, you can find on the Untapped app on iOS and Android, so follow us on there. Uh, the podcast, find us on SoundCloud and Stitcher and Google Play Music and most major podcasting platforms. Uh, most of you guys are listening on iTunes, so review us and share us and like us and do anything else positive on there. Or just, you know, whatever. Do yeah. anything with it. Just keep listening. We don't really care if it's positive or not. And tell your friends. And tell your friends whether they <laughs> like it or not. Um, anything else, guys? No, this is great. Things, Tom. Thanks again. That was as always was a lot exhausting, of fun. but yeah. really informative and, yeah, and fun. Um, yeah, we'll see you guys next week. Have fun in Parisville. Ooh.